This is a podcast about the history of the movies from the beginning. On today's podcast, the end of the 19th century approaches, but before we get there, we're going to take a look at a few countries and their attempts at dealing with cinema's potential. On this episode, we'll look at England and its film industry's early development. Movie things did happen in England, although the country's support for its homegrown industry was truly anemic. Some of this was simply a logical surrender to the ambitions of the Americans and the French. But at around this time, Britain's film industry had many similarities to what was happening in the United States and France, and yet things turned out so differently. Still, there was a real interest in creating a British film industry, so why didn't it take off is a bit of a puzzle. Way back, I talked about Auguste Le Prince, a Frenchman who developed a bond with the Whitleys, a family that ran a brass works factory in Leeds. Le Prince worked at the plant, married the owner's daughter, and when the plant eventually went under, he and his wife started to pursue other ideas and that included the development of the first movie camera and projector. As would become a repeated motif in the story of the early cinema in England, Le Prince's efforts went nowhere, and he even disappeared and was never found. I've mentioned the story of Robert Paul and Bert Akers. Paul was primarily a designer and inventor of scientific instruments, and that would remain his career path but he did develop early moving picture equipment after a small group of Greek-American kinetoscope parlor operators asked him to make a knockoff of Edison's machine. Paul had little experience with cameras, so he hired or contracted with Bert Akers to help him with the work. Akers was an American photographer living in England at the time. While the two men would soon have a major falling out, they did manage to build some early moving picture machines and make some early movies. Akers would struggle in England, but Paul would become a successful scientific tool developer with a respected reputation. But rather than following Paul and Akers, the path that started the British film industry as we know it came from the Edison people. When the kinetoscope was first made available, three separate groups intended to market the ill-fated machine. The group that got Europe was managed by two Americans, Frank McGuire and Joe Bacchus. Originally, their export offices were established in New York, but the other Edison distribution groups also settled there, and particularly the one run by Norman Raff and Frank Gammon, mistrusted McGuire. So, McGuire and Bacchus transferred their office to London, either out of frustration or opportunity. What McGuire and Bacchus found in England was that Edison had not patented his kinetoscope in Europe, and England was already using a number of Edison knockoffs made by Robert Paul. McGuire and Bacchus set out to fix the situation by threatening these people with lawsuits. Unfortunately, McGuire and Bacchus was a small company and didn't have the means to police every single resort town and entertainment district in England looking for knockoff kinetoscopes. But as interest in the Edison peephole machine waned and projection films started to appear, the battle of the projectors happened instead. The first projectors came from France. The Lumière's friend, Felicien Trevet, brought a projector to London to promote their moving image project, and that was soon followed up by Robert Paul's projector. As usual with Europe, Edison showed up late. But through Maguire and Bacchus, Edison finally had a physical presence in that world. So far, most of this story has been explained in other episodes. 
What I want to do is bring the British story ahead a few years, and the person who brings that story forward is another American, Charles Urban. Charles Urban was from Cincinnati, Ohio, a good city to live in if your family was leaving eastern Germany. It's not known if he had planned to pursue baseball as a young man, but an accident playing the game left him blind in one eye. Urban's gift seems to have been as a salesman. Stocky, ambitious, and even a little intense in his demeanor, he seems to have been driven to succeed and eventually ended up as a partner in a shop in Detroit that sold stationery, office supplies, and books. At least one source suggests that the shop also sold phonographs. Somehow, in the Detroit scheme of things, he ran into Robert Tomei. At the time, Tomei was a phonograph salesman and had been based in New York City. There, he had recently been working for the Kinetoscope Company, the Edison distributorship that was basically owned by the previously mentioned Raff and Gammon. But now, Tomei was now working for the Michigan Electric Company. Michigan Electric was a phonograph company, one of the many that was selling these early phonographs, graphophones, gramophones, and the like. Apparently, he liked Urban's ambitious, interested style and brought him on as a salesman. The two men may have also started a phonograph parlor in Detroit. Tomei's view of the phonograph was decidedly old-fashioned. Rather than promoting it as a tool for recorded music, he still liked to think of it as a talking machine. Urban was trained in that vision and soon became a very successful seller of dictation machines. This success didn't go unnoticed by the Michigan Electric offices. When that company started to promote the kinetoscope, Tomei and Urban picked some up for their parlor, and as it was with everywhere else, the machines proved to be quite successful. Over the next few years, word got back to Tomei and Urban about newer, better film contraptions, such as the Lumiere Cinematoscope and the Mutoscope and Biograph made by Dixon and his friends. Urban took off for New York City to see for himself. Completely fascinated by the machines, he sold his interest in the Detroit Entertainment Parlor and joined with McGuire and Bacchus as he agreed to run their London offices. From there, the burly, ambitious Charles Urban would inadvertently sow the seeds of England's film industry. Originally, the McGuire and Bacchus office was established on Oxford Street in a Soho neighborhood of London, and their purpose was to sell kinetoscopes, as well as a few Edison films that went with them. But with the growing availability of Robert Paul's machines and films, as well as the films and machines of the Lumieres, McGuire, Bacchus, and Urban grew frustrated. Unlike in America, where Edison had a strong legal grip, McGuire and Bacchus now had to contend with competition. Because of this tougher market, they were able to negotiate with the Edison Company to make films for them. It would be through this arrangement that McGuire and Bacchus would occasionally sponsor films for the American market. It was also through this arrangement that the company became the door in which Edison films appeared in Europe, and inversely, European films would travel to America. It was through McGuire and Bacchus that the very early French film pioneers, such as Georges Méliès, Alice Guy, and Gamont, as well as the British pioneers, such as Frank Mothershaw, James Williamson, and George Albert Smith, would see their films offered to the world's most profitable film market. About a year after Urban arrived in London, everything was changed at McGuire and Bacchus. I'm not quite sure who was responsible for these changes. Terry Ramsey suggests that Urban was the one moving the company about a mile to the east to Warwick Court and renaming it the Warwick Trading Company. The reason had to do with an attempt by British firms to paint the McGuire and Bacchus group as being way too American. 
British film historian Michael Channon doubts some of this story, but regardless, Maguire and Bacchus's outfit was now more Anglophilic, with a conservative London name. Behind Urban's takeover of the London end of Maguire and Bacchus's organization was his own bioscope camera. Back when Urban was checking out projectors in New York City, he sought out an acquaintance named Walter Isaacs. Isaacs was a machine mechanic who worked in the phonographic field. It was probably in the summer of 1896, as an Edison representative in Detroit, that Urban had acquainted himself with the Armat and Jenkins projector that Edison was offering. The problem was the machine ran on electric current, which was a major stumbling block in selling the vitascope. Urban asked Isaacs to build a similar machine, but only he had a short list of changes he wanted made. The first was that he wanted it to be hand-cranked, as was the Lumiere cinematograph. Another idea was to add a beater advancement mechanism to the machine. Finally, since the motor was being eliminated, Maybe it could be set up to allow other forms of outside illumination to project the machines. Some people used arc lighting, while others limelight. These were available for magic lantern operators. Urban figured it'd be a good idea if the projector could be designed to accommodate external light sources. When it was built, it was called the bioscope, and its availability would have made Urban a target of the Edison Group if he hadn't arranged to work in London and sell it there instead of selling it in the States. This meant that besides the Lumiere camera projector, the Edison Vitascope, and Robert Paul's camera and his projector, Europe now had access to the Urban Bioscope. One of the Warwick Trading Company's early cinematographers was George Albert Smith, or J. Smith, as he is sometimes referred to. George A. Smith was born in London, but his parents soon moved to England's Channelside Resort of Brighton. There his father worked as an artist, and his mother ran a boarding house for tourists. As a young man, he started a mind-reading act with a friend, Doug Blackburn, and the two performed in Brighton theaters. Eventually, this led to Smith's involvement with a psychic research organization. By the early 1890s, Smith had moved out to nearby Hove, where he leased and later bought St. Anne's Well Gardens. It was an aging tourist trap that was described as a huge house with a fair amount of land and he renovated the popular Brighton tourist attraction. The Well Gardens offered hot air balloon rides, a monkey house, parachute jumps, and even magic lantern shows. When projected cinema arrived in England in 1896, Smith managed to attend a showing of the Lumieres in London, and later he witnessed some of Robert Paul's films during the tourist season in Brighton. Later that year, he and his neighbor, James Williamson, went in together on a movie camera, and by the next spring, Smith and Williamson had close to three dozen films made, and Smith was showing them at his Well Gardens attraction. Smith's neighbor, James Williamson, was born and raised in Scotland, where he trained as a chemist. He moved to London and worked as a pharmacist, and then moved further into the southeast in Kent, where he also worked as a pharmacist, and also worked in photography. Through these two aspects of his life, he also started selling Kodak photographic chemical supplies. It's not known why Williamson moved around as much as he did. Still, in Kent, he married and started raising a family. Eventually, he too moved to Hove, where he again established a pharmacy befriended his neighbor, George Smith, and started to provide him with photographic chemicals. Sharing a common interest in photography, the two men started their movie project. It's almost impossible to grasp what sequence these early films were made in or to understand their development. 
For much of what Smith and Williamson made, all that's known is their names and descriptions in the early film catalogs. This is so different from the records left by the Edison Company and the Mutoscope Company. Of the three dozen films made by these two men in 1897, only three or four are known to survive. Quite a number of them are actualities, which shouldn't surprise anyone, but others are quite pleasant comedies, and it's those that are missed. It's hard not to believe that these early films were not influenced by the Lumieres, and it's hard to see any influence of the Edison style at all in what exists, either in the form of movies or of titles. An early title, such as Workers Leaving the Brighton Railway Station, was not only an easy local film to make, it suggests two different early and very important Lumiere films. Some of these early films were of local or regional subjects, but others were undoubtedly shot in London. This would be the case concerning the early images of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee and even film clips shot of the famous actress Ellen Terry. But the film that probably stands out is a local one called The Miller and the Chimney Sweep. A miller, dressed in white and carrying his bag of recently milled flour, also in white, bumps into a chimney sweep, carrying his bag of soot, with he and his bag all black. The two men get into a fight, with white and black powdering each other before a crowd chases them both away. There's a lot to say about such an early and relatively obscure film, including that it may not have been that obscure at all. But first, the story had its roots in a German comic tale from earlier that century. But who were all these people who appeared in the film is not known. Still, it's just about the first time that a film shows a number of trends that will develop into early film. The first is that these people are definitely being directed in some way, probably by George Smith. After all, He's the one presenting these films on stage. He's also the one given credit for the film. Williamson was probably involved in some way, maybe either as the miller or the chimney sweep. It's been mentioned that Smith and Williamson also used friends and neighbors to make these films. At the time, there was very little of this type of movie being made. All of Edison's films were actualities, as were almost all of the Lumieres. In Chicago, William Amet would use friends to make his Spanish-American War reenactments, but that wouldn't happen until the following year, 1898. Mutoscope and Biograph was still making actualities, although somewhere around this time they started to investigate independent ideas. So in a sense, this was probably the first interesting and influential comedy short available since the Lumieres made The Waterer Watered, or as the Americans referred to it, The Gardener and the Bad Boy. This film would also be copied by others, but would the public have seen it? I came across a vaguely worded article in a Scranton, Pennsylvania newspaper. This was at the end of 1897. November 25th to be exact. According to the article, the Knights of the Holy Cross Societies held a fundraising festival and membership drive in town. This was one of numerous fraternal religious organizations that were all over America at this time. Among the activities at the festival were recitations and songs rendered by members of the choir of St. Mary's Polish Catholic Church and that was followed by an amusing skit titled A Study in Black and White, or The Troubles of the Miller and the Chimney Sweep. This performance had been preceded by the St. Mary's Choir, and afterwards the floor was cleared to make way for dancing. Now, this article does not say that this was a film, but the title suggests A Study in Black and White does. In the German Bilderbogen stories, by a man named Bush, the slapstick chaos that erupts between the miller and the chimney sweep never really implies any contrast of black and white. 
They just pound on each other. But the article implies it, and so does the film. Also, while the newspaper refers to the performance as a skit, which usually does mean a very short stage performance, there are two reasons why I don't think that this is a reference to a short play. First of all is the word skit. Yes, it's still used in the way I described as a stage performance, but at this time it was also occasionally used to describe fictional film shorts. Then there is also common sense. The movie's description describes the miller and the chimney sweep as just pounding each other with bags of flour and bags of soot, climbing up a chimney and dumping buckets of water on each other. Who is going to do that on an amateur stage? And think of all the mess it would make and the time it would take to clean it up, especially when you could just rent the film. It could also have been a magic lantern performance, but those usually required a magic lantern projectionist to work it. Finally, as the room had to be cleared for dancing, the mess and complicated machinery would have had to be removed. The only thing that makes any sense is a moving picture projector. The Miller and the Chimney Sweep may have been the only film from that period that Smith and Williamson seems to have refilmed. I can't guarantee that comment, although the IMDB list under George Albert Smith's name lists the film two times, with a number one and a number two attached to them. I've had enough problems with IMDB's error-filled postings of the early films to know that this is not a guarantee. Much of early film history is like that. Faint suggestions of an idea with a possible collaboration from a few other faint suggestions. So make up your own mind on it. The film gets mentioned again in a Pittsfield, Massachusetts newspaper a few years later. Traveling exhibitor Lyman Howe had a major show at the Casino Theater, and no, it was not a casino as we think. But he ran 50 films, with many of them being actualities and comedies. Some were American and some were British. Some of the titles don't even appear in IMDb, such as The Joke on the Wrong Party. Maybe someone can correct me on that film. But Miller and the Chimney Sweep shows up. The last thing I can mention about this film is that it seems to be the first film that is still with us that shows a group chase scene. In the coming years, these would prove to be very popular especially after the success of Personal. It would eventually lead to all sorts of Keystone comedy bits, but I don't recall seeing it in any film before The Miller and the Chimney Sweep. But like almost everything in early comedy, it was probably a popular bit in vaudeville. Needless to say, Smith and Williamson's efforts at comedy probably had a much greater impact than the faint images of their history have left us. And maybe we need to make a greater effort to explore what is called the Brighton School. Another person who could make claims upon his ties to Maguire and Bacchus was Cecil Hepworth. In many ways, he's considered the father of the British film industry. Once Robert Paul returned to the scientific instrument market, after Maguire and Bacchus disappeared from the scene, while Charles Urban became involved with exporting European films to America, and as the Brighton School's success stalled, it would be Hepworth who would be the industry's most visible face. His father was one of the many magic lantern operators and lecturers touring England, entertaining audiences, and hauling the large collection of slides and heavy visual equipment to any meeting room, church, school, music hall, or public facility that would host the show. His father also regularly lectured at the Royal Polytechnic, a science school with an elaborate center lobby that displayed a number of fascinating late 19th century scientific concepts. This would be Hepworth's first school of education, that is, until the school closed. 
Central North London was Cecil Hepworth's young world, as he learned science not only from the school but from his father. He was developing photographs for him by the age of four and eventually worked the limelight at his father's show. In fact, it would be Cecil's skill with the limelight that allowed him to later work the illumination machines for some of his father's friends, and even later he would invent an electric lamp that would replace the gas-fed limelight and sell a number of these to his friend Robert Paul. Hepworth was raised in an atmosphere that seemed to destine him towards the science of visual entertainment. If he wasn't helping his father or distracted by the machines at school, he was entranced by the theater on the school's grounds. Once Polly closed, he was sent to a more academically-minded school. He still worked with his father and continued to be enchanted by theater, as he and his sisters attempted to create theatrical shows. It's hard to tell where he would have headed if Edison had not promoted the idea of moving images to the world. Maybe he would have developed the process himself. Except for Robert Paul, Hepworth was the most talented person in the field that was slowly becoming the British moving picture industry. Hepworth claimed that at the age of 18, he had witnessed Robert Paul showing early movies. The age he provides puts Robert Paul's efforts at around 1893, a date that's very doubtful. After all, if there are a few things that these inventors generally get wrong, it's their dates, as well as the sequence of events. More than likely, it was either in the fall of 1894 or sometime in 1895. Probably the latter, as Paul wouldn't have his projector ready until then. Still, it seems to be the spark that pushed Hepworth into moving pictures. He soon adapted his projector to show the moving film clips that he purchased from both Paul and a Lumiere salesman in town. It's also at this time that he met Bert Akers, and Hepworth believed that that meeting may have been independent of Akers' professional relationship with Robert Paul. Hepworth said he was hired by Akers to run his limelight at some of his shows. He remembers Akers as being someone who seemed to heavily sweat, probably from the heat of the lamp. For what seems to have been about six months or maybe more, Hepworth went to work for Charles Urban. Hepworth had been aware of the problems concerning the development of exposed films and built a mechanical development machine that carried strips of film through a chemical bath within a period of time needed to properly process the film strips. Hepworth was hired to run this machine, and during this time, he seems to have filmed his first movie short concerning the Oxford-Cambridge boat races. It eventually occurred to Irvin that it was costing him more to develop his films in-house than it would to do so through an outside firm. This was due to hiring Hepworth, so the young man was let go, and Urban contracted with the Brighton people to have his films developed. Through the years of his youth, and up until this time, Cecil Hepworth's occupational training had been in the photographic cinematographic world. He could build cameras, sell them, develop film, design cinematographic machines, record moving picture events, and even manage stores that sold the equipment. During the time he worked for Urban, he had also managed to finagle a job for his cousin, Monty Wicks. And once they were out on their own, Hepworth and his cousin and his development machinery all joined together to start an independent development lab. When this work proved to be less profitable than they had hoped, they decided to make their own films under the Hepwicks brand. By 1899, Hepworth and Wicks had moved to Walton-on-Thames, another one of those once-distant village towns that has now become part of suburban London. Soon after, Hepworth started building a movie studio of sorts. While studios would soon look like glass houses, the very first setups tended to look more like stages with ceilings that adjusted for sunlight. 
Hepworth's real strengths would emerge in the coming decade. Now I'll talk about American, I mean British, mutoscope and biograph. Because of some of the names of the companies and equipment seem so similar at this point, I've been tiptoeing around the issue of biograph and mutoscope. As you remember, Mutoscope was the company that William Kennedy Laurie Dixon started with three other men, and they marketed a tabletop card-flipping movie machine called the Mutoscope, and it was vaguely similar to Edison's Kinetoscope. By the time the machine came out, Edison had replaced his peephole machine with a projector. This meant that the Mutoscope company now had to devise its own projector, and that machine was called the Biograph. From that point on, into the coming century, the company would be known by the unwieldy name of the American Mutoscope and Biograph Company. By the time the struggling actor David Wart Griffith joined the company in 1908, the name had been changed to the Biograph Company. And if this isn't confusing enough, it's also very easy to confuse the Biograph Company with another American film company, the Vitagraph Company. I'm trying my best to continue to make these names clear. Now, on to the American Mutoscope and Biograph Company's foray into England. It's not known exactly why Mutoscope decided to establish itself in England. Dixon was from England, but he showed little interest in the workings of his company. Maguire and Bacchus did help establish Europe as a secondary market for Edison machines, but the Edison company made no real attempt to move into the European market, leaving it to his distributors, and even they could be rather indifferent to the needs of the Europeans. The situation in England was in many ways like America and France but it was also unlike those two. At this time, which was at the very end of the 19th century, the film industry in general was dominated by small cottage companies, although a few very large companies did dominate. One of those was the Edison Company, which was ruthless at times, but also quite indifferent to the small companies that existed around it. The Lumieres were even more indifferent to the growth of the industry. As the brothers were already showing signs of preferring the mechanical side of the business to the artistic side. To a degree, the Lumiere situation was not unlike that of Robert Pauls, although he continued to show interest in the distribution of films for some time. But in France and in America, a slowly growing sense of success was pushing the industry upwards. The Lumieres were starting to push off their movie business towards two other companies, Gaumont and Pathé. In America, a few of the cottage firms, such as Lubin and Selig, were already showing signs of their own success. But this wasn't happening in England. England had quite a number of these small cottage companies in a scattering of places, not just London, but Brighton, Yorkshire, Sheffield, and Lancashire. In France and America, the domestic market over the next several years would make these companies wealthy. They would build large studios as well as independent labs for film development and hire a large support staff to run these companies. And while the English companies did build studios, everything was smaller, from the staff to the size of the sets. It might be simply that Britain's domestic market was too small, and that might be true. England certainly made a much greater effort towards its export business than did either France or the States. But usually it was the Brits who ran their own import-export businesses. Unfortunately, it was the Americans, and to a lesser degree, the French, that controlled the import-export business of the movie industry in England. This did not necessarily mean that the English filmmakers were getting screwed in some way. There was a willing market for British films in both France and America, especially as Brighton and Sheffield would prove to be quite influential within a few years. 
there would be importers in America willing to bring in about as much as they could get of the British and French films. But British film production would never be as prolific as were the French, and no one seemed to mind. But by the end of the decade, this situation would start to strangle the British film industry in its bed. In the U.S., the industry had been on a trust binge, led by J.P. Morgan. America's wide-open free market and cowboy economics had led to a series of violent economic upturns and downturns, and Morgan decided that America's businesses needed to form business combinations, or trusts, to control the roller coaster economics that America was facing during the Gilded Age. So industry after industry agreed to fix prices and form combines. Oil, sugar, salt, whiskey, steel, tobacco, and even cord and rope. There were over 300 trusts and monopolies in America at this time. This would be the contemporary economic model that the Edison Company will eventually use to attempt to dominate the movie industry. In England, if anyone could have pulled off turning cinema into a monopoly, it would have been Robert Paul. But while Edison needed to control his market to keep his financial situation strong, Paul was able to succeed through his scientific instrument company and never bothered to hunt down his competition and destroy them. After all, he was just as guilty as the others of exploiting Edison's situation in Europe. So what England had at the end of the 1890s was a number of marketers offering machines, films, and even exhibition packages to the people looking to exhibit films. The relationship between very early cinema and Great Britain was also different than in America due to the state of development in each country, especially its entertainment industry. England's theater was well-established throughout the country, and even its newer forms of entertainment, such as the music halls, easily fit into that structure, as its business, travel, and financial arrangements already existed. America, on the other hand, was much less economically structured. Its entertainment industry was still predominantly in the Northeast, with the railroads still attempting to take it westward and southward. The American South was still underpopulated and financially struggling due to the effects of the Civil War. The Midwest was also underpopulated, and the West Coast cities were still very new. In America, the movie industry tended to act like a virus, mutating and grabbing onto whatever host would support it. In England, cinema had to adjust to the already well-established entertainment industry and had to find its place among them. In a sense, the industry was more like a family attempting to move into a new neighborhood. It had to be nice to others and follow the rules that its neighbors established. Instead, it would be the American and French companies that would soon develop the next important British film companies. These would include Biograph, Gaumont, and Pathé. Of these, British Mutoscope and Biograph was first, and the only one to make a dent this early in the story. It seems to have fallen upon the lap of Elias Koopman to take the Mutoscope to England. Koopman was one of the four men who had established Mutoscope. But to be fair, there were closer to 16 people who originally invested in the company. But it was the brainchild of Koopman, Herman Kasler, Laurie Dixon, and Henry Marvin. As Koopman was the salesman of the company, rather than one of the developers, little is written about Elias Koopman. Like Dixon, he had some ties to the American South. His parents were from Germany, but they established themselves in Charlotte, North Carolina, not long after the Civil War. Elias was born down there, and his father seemed to have been a successful merchant. My guess is that the economic downturn of the late 1870s damaged the family's financial health very badly, and from then on, the family trail grows faint. Like his father, 
Elias started to sell things, and in the 1890s, he was in New York State and had established a novelty sales business based on magic trick accessories. And it's through this that he established ties with Kassler and Marvin. So again, magic appears to have influenced another pioneer of early film. Why Koopman went to London is not known. Mutoscope's interest in Europe may simply have been to compete with Maguire and Bacchus, or the influence of Charles Urban's interest in exporting European films to America. Whatever the reason, Koopman was in London by late 1897 and had established British Mutoscope. Officially, the company was established in early 1898. The investors were primarily a small group centered around British publisher and liberal baronet George Nunes. The others were William Bright, Edward Hudson, C. Arthur Pearson, and William Smedley. Along with Koopman, they set out to use the biograph camera as a recorder of news events, and for a time, it was Britain's primary source of newsreel events. The directors, as well as its leading lender, Lloyd's Bank, sold shares in this newly incorporated British mutoscope and biograph company at one pound each, selling 250,000 shares, with their additional 50,000 pounds providing capitalization of the company at 300,000 pounds. With that, British Mutoscope hoped to manufacture machines and sell them and become Britain's newsreel to the world. This was the first major attempt by Britain to capitalize on the growing film market, and during this time, when a series of events over the next three or four years would place a high demand upon newsreel footage, British Mutoscope would do well. Unfortunately, by around 1903, when interest in international news started to dim, Pathé appeared as competition. As early cinema was starting to interest itself in narrative, politics inside of British Mutoscope started to tear the company apart. Director William Smedley was put in charge of the company, and after a few years of fighting, Elias Koopman left. Smedley's decisions did not jive with the changing market, and British Mutoscope's success started to fail. It's around this time that England fell into a movie fad that was probably the result of the American film companies establishing themselves in England. It was called Phantom Rides and involved the train movies coming from France and America. As you know, the first train movie was from the Lumieres and showed the train from Lyon slowing down as it approached the station in La Chiatat in southern France. When the American companies decided to make their train films, rather than establish themselves at the train depot, they set up a camera out in the field, near the track, and capturing images of trains going 50 miles an hour, such as the Black Diamond Express. Eventually, a third option rose. This one involved the more risky option of tying the cameraman to the front of the train and setting up the camera with him. The Lumieres kind of launched this idea when one of their cameramen set himself up in a train to film it leaving Jerusalem. But when the Mutoscope people decided to do this north of New York City, on the west side of the Hudson, they not only captured the panoramic images, they captured a ride through a tunnel. The film was called Have a Straw Tunnel, and it was popular. When American Mutoscope and Biograph went over to England and set up a British Mutoscope and Biograph, they brought their films along with them. Not long after the Queen's Jubilee in 1897, the Egyptian Hall started showing train movies along with magic shows. In particular was the Black Diamond Express short, advertised as the American Express going 60 miles per hour. They also mention phantom rides, although it's not clear what they're referring to. Within a few weeks, British Mutoscope was projecting their biograph at the Palace Theatre, and they too were offering views of a phantom ride. 
As their locomotive masterpiece was the Havistraw Tunnel film, this must have been the film that they were referring to. In the last weeks of the year, interest in the Phantom Rides grew. By Christmas, the Daily News was referring to the Phantom Ride films, as well as the Black Diamond Express, as marvels of realism. British companies started filming tunnel films, as well as panorama films shot from the front of a train. For a year, it was kind of a cinematic fad and maybe more of a marketing tool to keep the public interested in early films. But the Boer War was already creeping in, and newsreels of that war would soon take over. Interestingly, while the Black Diamond Express and the Havistraw Tunnel films were popular in America, the term Phantom Ride was not. I can't even find a reference to them in the Canadian newspapers. In October of 1898, Robert Paul ran ads proclaiming his latest endeavor, his animatograph, and the films that went with them. If you remember, Paul's earlier machine, the theatrograph, was very much influenced by his work copying Edison's kinetoscope, and some of that machine seems to have been devised by Bert Akers. As far as I can tell, the animatograph was developed for a handful of reasons. One of them may have been an attempt to move the design away from both Akers' ideas as well as anything truly proprietary, such as Edison's film advancement system. Another influence may also have been the Paris Charity Fire, as Paul claimed his machine was fireproof. Another reason may have been his attempts at dabbling in color film, or more appropriately, tinted film. It's rather obvious from the ad that he considered his greatest rival, or the rivals, to be Georges Méliès and possibly the Lumières. The Lumière brothers were also investigating the development of color film, a project that had sidetracked them from their interest in the movies and was now taking on international significance. Their influence, as well as the influence of the Edison's hand-tinted work, seemed to have motivated Paul. Here are excerpts from his almost page-long ad in the London era. The cinematograph is played out. In the scene, the public no longer rushes to see photographs move, but as a means of entertainment has never been properly exploited. The public has been surfeited with trains, trams, and buses, and beyond a few scenes, whose humor is all too French in nature to please English audiences, the capacity of animated pictures for producing breathless sensation and laughter and tears has hardly been realized. All this has changed, for during the past summer, a staff of artists and photographers have been at work in the north of London, with the object of producing a series of animated photographs 80 in number, each of which tell a story, whether comic, pathetic, or dramatic, and presents it with such clearness, brilliancy, and telling effect that the attention of the beholders should be riveted. The comic ones are enough to make a cat laugh. So out of these 80 films, he mentions four. The Servant Difficulty, The Nursery Scene, In the Queen's Name, and Come Along Do. Supposedly of these four, and of the 80 in general, only Come Along Do still exists, although I did see a short Robert Paul anthology on YouTube that showed what may have been the nursery scene, which quickly descends into the latest version of the Pillow Fight movies. Come Along Do is about a couple discussing what they were going to visit inside an art museum. Once inside, the man observes an unclad female statue. Although the film has been severely cut in half, there are photographic stills of the second scene to suggest that the man's reactions are rather over the top concerning the nude statue. But this film really does have some real implications. 
Like I said, if you watch these films, you'll see that they are primarily influenced by the early films of Georges Méliès. Méliès's films were loaded with photographic tricks, magic tricks, and well-made backdrops. Gaumont's film producer, Alice Guy, was the person who was most influenced by Méliès's style, but Robert Paul's approach to Méliès's influence was to attempt to make a British version. This directed Méliès's film style away from the French stage and fairy tale influence and based them on Britain's entrenched Victorian atmosphere. In Come Along Do, this involves a British couple reacting to a realistically styled naked statue at a time when Impressionism and Post-Impressionism was making its mark in Europe. The man's reaction to the statue also is reminiscent of a future Robert Paul film that would become quite popular and influential in the next few years. Known as The Countryman and the Cinematograph, and copied by the Edison Company, among others, it shows a country farmer reacting ridiculously to the early films. He runs up to the screen and dances with the dancers in a movie, reacts in a panic to a train movie, and gets all mushy over a kissing couple. All these films within a film were Robert Paul films, and not clips of Edison's or the Lumiere's. But they were certainly based on films like Annabelle, The Kiss, Arrival of the Train at La Chietat, and even Black Diamond Express. In a sense, Come Along Do, as well as Countrymen, simply show the extended influence of the first Lumiere comedy, Le Rasseur à Rose, or The Waterer Watered which in America was usually known as the gardener and the bad boy. This new development of Paul's was meant to show his latest interests in development strategies, but it's also leading us into a subject that will soon be discussed on its own, the beginning of storytelling in the movies. It's obvious that many of the same ideas were appearing at the same time, and these ideas had been coming from France, England, and America. Robert Paul's efforts threw a large shadow over English film history at this point, but his retreat back into the scientific mechanical world had a much different effect on Britain than did the Lumiere's retreat in France. We're now reaching the end of the 1800s. In a few episodes, I'll talk about that time and the movie's place in it, but before I do, I need to discuss another country that appears outside of the Big Three. Japan. So next time, we'll talk about Japan, its interest in early cinema, and the first films they made. So thanks for listening, and take care of yourselves.